Hello and welcome to this UVP podcast. Today we will be talking about the recent Building Bridges conference and our takeaways uh, in terms of nature, finance and food systems. I'm Simon Picard and I chair the Impact Investment Committee for UVP and I also co-chair UVP's Biodiversity Committee. Um, I have the pleasure uh, of being joined today by two distinguished ladies from the world of nature and finance. Jessica Smith has worked in several leading positions in the public and private sectors and has led the Nature Programme at the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative since 2020. Victoria Leggett is a fund manager and has since 2018 been UBP's Head of Impact Investing. Jessica and Victoria, hello. Hi, Simon. Hello, Simon. Thanks for having me. Um, I'd like to start by, uh, by, by asking you about the Building Bridges Conference, which you both attended. Uh, Building Bridges is Switzerland's leading sustainable finance conference, which has just been held in Geneva. Um, and I wonder if you could um, comment on what topics uh, that you saw getting the most traction this year. Jessica, I wonder if I could start with you on that. Certainly, Simon. I heard three headlines particularly loudly at this year's Building Bridges. The first was the prominence of nature brought on by the launch of the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. The second is the cost of capital being unaligned with sustainability. And the third was the African debt crisis and the inability of African countries to meet climate and nature targets when they face such acute debt crisis. If I can zoom in a little bit on the TNFD European launch, at UNIPFI, we were part of the founding group who brought together the TNFD and have been supporting it in terms of piloting its recommendations. We've been absolutely thrilled to see how much uptake the TNFD has generated in terms of awareness of nature from the financial sector and corporate. And we're now seeing that we're able to converge around assessment methods, metrics, which will be catalytic in terms of mainstreaming nature across finance and real economy sectors. Thank you so much. Um, turning to you, Victoria, uh, did, did you feel there was any difference uh, compared to previous years in how nature was brought into the conference um, and, and how the conference saw the interplay between not only nature, but also climate and people? Yeah, I mean, the major difference was the prominence that nature had. I mean, just to echo Jessica and, and of course, the TNFD launch um, was the sort of backbone of that. But nature was definitely much more mainstream. And um, I think joining up the conversations between nature and climate, it, that felt like it was a more established concept this year. And nature and climate are still oddly in my view um quite often talked about as as separate streams so that was that was really interesting and, and encouraging to note and um, i guess tnfd being such a close cousin of, of tcfd kind of facilitates that discussion so so we should have expected that um on the people aspects you know nature climate and people i think we've still got a long way to go uh nature certainly from the seminars I attended, it's still primarily being discussed through a carbon or a biodiversity lens. Although there were a few 
conversations and a few examples which were encouraging around the around the discussion of the role that um, nutrition plays. Uh, and obviously, better nutrition promotes better health and arguably better nutrition comes from better soil. So, so that conflates with what's, you know, what's good for nature is good for people. Th those conversations were emerging, but I wouldn't say that they were center stage. Thanks a lot. And I'd, I'd like to sort of take that that idea on nutrition a bit further and specifically ask about the role that food systems play in addressing nature. Um, Jessica, do you think you could situate the importance of food systems in terms of addressing nature and, and climate? Certainly. Uh, first of all, I just want to quickly build on what Victoria was saying about people. And I would say there is an emerging understanding from the financial community that Indigenous peoples and local communities play an important role in biodiversity and nature. So studies, including one from FAO that came out a couple of years ago, suggest that although Indigenous peoples are 5% of the world's population, they're actually stewarding 80% of the world's biodiversity, and this is primarily within their food systems. So the, the links to society are extremely important when we think about nature, climate, people, food, as Victoria outlined. But more broadly, right now, in terms of climate and nature interlinkages, these are absolutely baked together. And in terms of looking for solutions, we need to look at climate and nature together to find uh, mutually supportive solutions. So right now, around a third of our greenhouse gas emissions are coming from land use and particularly from agriculture. Around 8 to 10% of total greenhouse gas emissions come from food waste alone. So we see that food is really central in climate, although it's not often looked at that way. At the same time, Agriculture is a primary driver of nature loss. Around 80% of deforestation, which has that feedback loop to climate, and 70% of terrestrial biodiversity loss is linked to food systems. Around 70% of our global freshwater is used for agriculture, and around half our habitable land is also used for agriculture. Much of this is linked to livestock. So there's much to unpack at this intersection, but I echo what Victoria said in terms of the important role of thinking about Indigenous peoples and local communities in terms of part of the solution. Much of our remaining biodiversity and arable land that is available for development is in the Global South, where there is not necessarily the governance context that you would have in a more diversified economy. So it does warrant different ways of thinking. Um, and in April this year, we published a roadmap for financial institutions that's available from the UNFFI website that gives a bit of this context and solutions for the financial sector, whether they be loans, bonds, other types of products that are available today already to make a contribution to help transform our global food system towards more sustainable outcomes. Thanks a lot, Jessica. I mean, I think those are some, you know, pretty key stats and figures in terms of the importance of addressing food systems. Um, Victoria, I, I wonder if you could perhaps uh, try to shed some light on the investment opportunities you see as a result of this need to address food systems, uh, and particularly uh, on where where, on, where in the value chain these opportunities tend to be situated. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Food 
uh, penetrate so many different sectors. And I would say all across that value chain, we can find interesting investment opportunities, which is fortuitous because as Jessica said, it's absolutely a, a linchpin for, for fixing these biodiversity challenges. So, I mean, in the listed space, which is where I operate, uh, we can we can't directly invest in land, and there isn't m- much direct exposure to growing. We can find that in places, but um, sort of on the other hand, the, the best precision agriculture names in the world are in our universe, and some of them in our fund. and And precision ag is is a really interesting space because at best it really can be seen as a transition to regenerative agriculture. So from what we've become accustomed to terming traditional agriculture, which is heavy on chemical input um, and soil disruption, um, moving through precision ag into regenerative agriculture, which is what about soil restoration, although there's there are many different uh, definitions. Um, but even if it doesn't provide that transitional pathway all the way, simply uh, deploying this technology is very powerful. It, it allows for substantial reduction in chemical use on farms, um, which obviously supports biodiversity, but also human health, um, because you're you're reducing or eliminating runoff into rivers, etc. So that's that's one exposure, kind of more to the top of the value chain. Uh, further along, we also invest in food delivery service, uh, food producers, food retailers, and the. The companies we've chosen, there's quite a rigorous uh, process for choosing these businesses. It's not anything to do with food that we would consider a positive investment. Um, They're established profitable businesses with, I would say, a nature conscious positive approach to their supply chain and their customer base. I mean, when, when we talk about carbon, we talk a lot about emissions and we're sort of seeing it as a downstream problem, whereas with nature, a lot of the time we have to look upstream and and that inevitably falls to um, diets and it falls to the, the food companies who have sometimes these very complex long supply chains. So the companies that are really at the forefront in terms of transparency, disclosure and really engaging with people, the growers at the top of that supply chain, they're the ones that um, are in our sites. We do have some smaller and kind of more early stage businesses, because if you think of the food system, you're not just thinking about big supermarkets, but what is the innovation around the food system? What what will make it ultimately change? And I guess people's minds go to vertical farming, um, plant-based diets, that sort of thing. But we, we do have to balance the financial and non-financial aspects of our mandate. And so overall, at the moment, um, highly geared businesses, which are at a cash consumptive stage, are not being well, well rewarded by the market. So if we do take a stake in, in, a, in a technology or an innovation that we really believe in for the long term, we have to make sure that the position is sized appropriately for that short term risk. Thanks so much, Victoria. I wonder, I wonder if we could carry on with this and... Um... I'd also be interested in on your views uh, on what the financial sector can do in terms of stewardship. So in order to ensure that the, the right sort of change is occurring in food systems. Yes, um, I, I think particularly in secondary markets, stewardship is arguably the most important role that the financial sector can play. If, if we um, talk to Jessica, I'm sure she can cite many other areas of 
uh, direct finance that are helpful, if not critical. But when you are talking about the scale and the size of, of um, secondary um, equity, listed equities and fixed income, then I think being an engaged custodian of capital is really important. And I suppose this is quite obvious that this relates to bilateral engagement with companies. We're all accustomed to that. Uh, and most active fund managers uh, do that these days. But I think perhaps a more powerful aspect of stewardship is is the ability and the unique position of finance to be the facilitator for broader stakeholder conversations. So the NGO space, as we're hearing today, has a huge amount to offer, a huge knowledge base to support a transition to a more nature positive business model. So to getting these experts in the same room as policymakers and corporates, to me, that's a really compelling way to begin to change systems at scale. Thanks so much, Victoria. Um... Jessica, um, you've you've really underlined today uh, the importance of engagement with local communities within food systems, and, and indeed we heard a lot about that at Building Bridges, and it's it's one of the hallmarks of the recently published um, TNFD guidelines. I wonder if you could say a bit more um, about how you believe that finance and corporates should take communities into account. Certainly, thank you, Simon. I think what we're seeing is a major shift right now in how we think about indigenous peoples and local communities. I would say some investors and corporates imagine that there are, you know, large wild areas which are not managed in the world. But in fact, if we look at many wild areas in the world, we can see comparable outcomes from indigenous protected areas to state protected areas. Sometimes indigenous territories where land are respected have even better outcomes for nature, for biodiversity, for climate. So we're now gaining this understanding, which is also being supported by a number of studies which are coming out very quickly, which are putting local communities as nature's champions much more clearly on the agenda. So this is a thought shift for many in the financial and corporate space in terms of how do we approach the nature topic. Also around 40% of our irrecoverable carbon is stewarded by indigenous people. So it is also creating a shift in how we think about carbon management as well. Now, some of the very practical things that are needed are clear minimum stakeholder engagement requirements. Some countries have legislation around free prior and informed consent and other countries do not. We've seen for large infrastructure projects, for example, that follow the IFC performance standards or the equator principles, examples of guidance for achieving uh, fair, just partnerships with free prior and informed consent, but these are not necessarily always scaled to the types of projects or investments that are possible in the food space. So it requires greater thinking about how do we have these relationships but one of the key pieces is having grievance and redress mechanisms so that if communities are threatened or harmed by investments, that there is a transparent process. And this is following the UN guiding principles for human rights. Another mechanism is thinking about insurance for communities engaging in projects. We have insurance for financial transactions, 
but we also need to think about insurance to help manage and mitigate the risks on the community side. Another topic is around Indigenous data sovereignty. So if we're saying that food systems that are stewarded by Indigenous people contain valuable traditional knowledge, we need to make sure that data around that traditional knowledge is in the hands of the Indigenous people who have generated that IP. So I think these are just some examples. Some are at a project and site level, and some need to be in terms of the design of markets. So one of the initiatives we're working on now is in the emerging biodiversity credit space. We've arranged a community advisory panel from Indigenous peoples and local communities worldwide to advise the Biodiversity Credit Alliance. And we've now had many, many other stakeholders come to ask for advice from this community advisory panel so that we're getting markets and the very rapid developments in nature finance set up in a way that benefits those who have championed nature and who have succeeded in stewarding nature, even gets many, many threats and challenges. That's great, Jessica. Thank you so much for, for underlining that sort of, you know, really important part of this conversation. So it just remains to me, uh, Jessica and Victoria, to thank you both very, very much for this fascinating conversation. And also to thank our listeners on behalf of UBP for listening to this podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.